2: This episode is going to be about ancient Egypt and Egyptian mythology. The myths in this episode do vary depending on when and where they are written. The ones I'll portray are the ones that I came across that when combined seem to be the closest to an actual story with a beginning and an ending of sorts. But just know there might be other versions, and some details might not match up. And at some parts, in their purest forms, go off on tangents that I won't follow here. There's some symbology that might get left out for the sake of this being a short podcast, like the differences between Ra's eyes in the beginning, or maybe some object that a god or goddess might be depicted as holding or wearing. There are also a lot of different names for a lot of the same gods through time. I'll stick with the Greek variants, since those are the ones that are the most familiar to me. Also, when you start bumping up against the Greek and Roman influence in Egyptian myths, they absolutely seem to take on some of the Greek and Roman character. For example, Ra and Helios sort of fill the same cultural role, as do Horus and Apollo. Also, Isis seems to start out as a less important goddess in many ways, but grows in importance and influence and then explodes in popularity when the Greeks and Romans come to the scene. So, if you think some of the themes of religions of yesteryear seem familiar to other religions and mythology, even of today... Well, you're far from the first person in history to think that or be wildly confused by it. So, without further ado, here we go. In the beginning, there was only the primeval waters of the universe. Out of these waters, Ra would bring himself to life. But in the watery void, Ra had no place to be. So Ra spoke the first words, and they echoed through the primeval waters of chaos and out of his words came the first land. Ra stood on the land and was pleased. Then he continued to create. He spat out the goddess Tefnut and the god Shu. Tefnut coming from the moisture in his spit and Shu from his dry breath. They were Ra's children, and he loved them. One day, as Tefnut and Shu were playing, they wandered off into the expanse. Ra became anxious and worried. He missed his children and he feared they might be lost forever. So he removed his only eye and sent it off to find his children. While he waited, blindly, he made himself another eye out of fear that his first eye would never return, or that his children would return, but the eye wouldn't, and he would not be able to see them again. Ra's old eye flew around the world until it found Tefnut and Shu, and then ultimately returned them to Ra. When Ra saw his children, he wept with his new eye and out of his tears would come humans. The eyes of Ra would sense both their innocence and the hunger that would consume innocence. The old eye hissed and spat at the new eye and the new creation, so Ra turned it into a cobra and stuck it on his forehead in a place of honor. As they got older, Tefnut and Shu soon realized they could also create. They gave birth to Geb and Newt, but Geb and Newt were tangled up at birth and seemed inseparable, until Ra separated them and made Geb the earth and bent Newt around Geb, making her the sky. Intrigued by the form of Newt, the sky, Ra would board his boat and sail across. The first half of the journey was one of life and beauty, and the second half one of death and exhaustion. This cycle of life, death, and rebirth was exhilarating to Ra, so he decided to make this journey every day afterwards. Then out of Geb and Nut were born Osiris, Isis, Set, and Nephthys. Ra was pleased with nine total gods, and he finished creating the universe as we see it today, starting with the elements, and then the colors, then the insects including the scarab, as well as birds like the falcon, both of which would become his sacred symbols. Ra could see the beauty in his creation, as well as the chaos. Ah, yes order and chaos, he thought. But he sensed in humans a capacity for chaos and the potential to send the world out of balance. Isis and Osiris were benevolent gods who grew favor with the humans. They listened to their needs and prayers and responded with advice and help. Isis and Osiris would soon fall in love and the people of Egypt would choose Osiris and Isis to be their leaders. Set, whose own wife was Nephthys, was jealous of the attention Osiris and Isis received from the humans. He was also jealous of Osiris' relationship with Set's own son Anubis. Anubis looked up to Osiris and seemed to take after him in many ways, and when Anubis grew up and left home, Set did not even care. One detail that I'll add in here to this part that I found interesting. In some versions of this story, they say Anubis was the son of Set. In other versions, they say he was the son of Nephthys and Osiris after a one-night stand in which Osiris mistook Nephthys for Isis, and that Nephthys was never even sure who the father was. Some stories outright say that he was Osiris' son, but who really knows? DNA testing didn't exist yet, and Anubis was never aware of any of this. Or it could just be that Set disliked Anubis because Anubis reminded him of his brother Osiris for other reasons. Set decided he would act on this jealousy and anger, so he came up with a plan to deal with Osiris once and for all. While Osiris slept, Set quietly and carefully measured his body and finalized his plans. Set then held a banquet and invited Osiris and Isis. After the banquet, Set unveiled a beautiful box he'd had crafted, vibrantly painted with beautiful, intricate designs. The box was a hit at the party, and all the guests were infatuated by its beauty. Set declared that whoever could fit inside the box would get to keep the box as a gift. One by one, the guests tried to claim the box, but they were all too long, too short, or too fat. Everyone except Osiris, which was exactly what Set had planned. As soon as Osiris was inside, Set and his accomplices slammed the box shut and sealed it. Set picked up the box and flung it as far away as he could and into the river. An interesting note here, in some versions, Osiris thinks this is punishment for sleeping with Nephthys, but he doesn't know for sure. Isis screamed and ran as fast as she could, attempting to rescue her husband before the box disappeared over the horizon. She ran as fast as she could for several days, her feet bruised and bleeding, but when she reached the sea, she still didn't see the box. She ran along the coasts and back up the river, but she never found the box. The box had drifted out to sea. Where it drifted, until it was washed up on shore and was engulfed in some reeds. Osiris's body, Osiris being the god of fertility, caused the reeds to grow into a great evergreen tree that smelled of perfume. Birds loved and would flock to the tree. A nearby king and queen found the tree one day, and wanted the tree moved to their palace to serve as a decorative column, not knowing that the tree contained the body of Osiris. Away on the shores of Egypt, Isis was mourning the death of her husband until a peculiar flock of birds found her and seemed to be telling her something. Understanding her grief, Isis set out and followed the birds, sure that they must be leading her to Osiris. When she arrived at the palace, she realized for the first time that Osiris really was dead, and that perhaps the birds weren't taking her anywhere meaningful. She continued to weep, but had finally accepted the loss of Osiris. Isis remained at the palace to rest a while before returning home. Isis met the queen of the palace, but the queen didn't recognize that Isis was a goddess. Mistaking her for a handmaiden, the queen set Isis to care for her baby boy. Isis soon began to fall in love with the tiny human, her love for him filling the void that was left by the death of Osiris. Isis eventually realized, though, that the boy would die. She decided she would try to make him an immortal, So she built a large fire from cedar wood, placing the boy in the fire. Isis turned into a swallow and began circling the fire and performing a spell to make him immortal. Hearing the noise, the queen rushed into the room and pulled the boy from the fire. Isis was furious and revealed herself to the queen as a goddess. She demanded the large wooden column in the palace be split and added to the fire. Afraid, the queen had the column split, which revealed the box that contained Osiris. Isis lost it. Overwhelmed by grief at the sealed box and the thought of her suffocated Osiris trapped inside of it all this time, the baby boy she had tried to use to replace Osiris died in his mother's arms. Then, realizing that disaster and despair seemed to follow her everywhere, Isis left and took the box with her, took it back to Egypt to bury it. When Isis returned to Egypt, she decided to open the box. She couldn't resist the temptation to get one last look at her husband. When she saw the decayed body, she became very distraught. She immediately closed the box and hid it in a swamp while she set off to prepare herself for the rituals of burial. But Set had begun transforming himself into a wolf-like monster and hunting at night. One night, he stumbled on the box, enraged at the mere thought of Osiris, he opened the box and tore apart and scattered the body across the land into 14 pieces. When Isis discovered this, she was again overcome with grief. Since Osiris was not whole, he could not pass on to the afterlife. Nephthys, who was aware of all of this, was torn between loyalty to her husband Set and to her sister Isis, but ultimately decided that she would help Isis recover the pieces of Osiris. They found 13 pieces, but the 14th, had allegedly been eaten by some beast. Isis was again distraught, but hearing of her grief, the tongue of Ra intervened and used his power to reassemble the pieces of Osiris. Isis made the missing piece from clay. As Osiris returned to form, Isis kissed him and clung to him, but Osiris could only stay for one night, as the world of the living was no place for a dead person. Soon after Osiris departed, Isis realized she was pregnant. An overjoyed Isis realized she would need to hide the child from Set, who had claimed the throne of Osiris for his own. Surely Set would seek to kill any heir of Osiris. So Isis again endeared herself to the humans, playing with their children and answering all of their questions about life and family. She also learned that Osiris had become a ruler in the afterlife. Isis was rejuvenated. She disguised her pregnancy well and told no one. When the time came, she gave birth in the same swamp she had hidden Osiris' coffin in when she returned it to Egypt. She named her son Horus and hoped that Ra would take a special interest in him, given that he would be at risk of being discovered by Set. This fear drove Isis to practice magic. She started on humans, curing diseases and broken bones. She got better and better until she was also able to protect her son. Isis was confident that she would be able to protect Horus from Set and from any other problems that Horus might encounter until he grew into a young man. Horus was raised by his mother Isis and his aunt Nephthys, who would teach him how to become a falcon and fly across the land. He grew up on legendary stories of his father Osiris, and he was taught the laws and the ways of men by his mother. When he got older, Isis told him the story of how a jealous and angry Set betrayed his father, murdered him, and usurped his throne. When Horus was old enough, his mother hoped that he would take back his father's throne from Set. So when the time came, an appeal to the elder gods was made, but they ultimately took no real action. Set had sat on the throne for some time now and claimed to have protected Egypt from invaders and been a competent leader. Isis would even disguise herself as a beautiful handmaiden and trick Set into admitting his claim to the throne was invalid, but it did not matter, and Set would not yield. Set and Horus would go on to wage war for decades, taking turns beating each other. And at one point, Set would even gouge out Horus' eyes, but Ra's eye would restore Horus's sight with his own power. Ra ultimately makes his opinion known in favor of Horus. Horus then casts Set into the abyss and takes his father's throne. But the war is still not over. Horus and Set still do battle, and will continue until Set is defeated once and for all, at which time Osiris will return to the world, and all will come to a final peace. There are more stories in ancient Egypt to be sure, but that's it for this episode. We'll pick back up on some of the other ones in another episode, and maybe at some point take a deeper dive into some of the weirder things like Ra's eye, which had its own names and personalities, and could act independently of Ra. If you pay attention as you're out and about, you'll probably see that seeing eye of Ra stickered or tattooed somewhere. But it's actually a little bit less of Ra's eye, and more like an independent god or goddess. One that sometimes serves as Ra's actual eye, but is usually busy making sure the universe doesn't fall apart as Ra joyrides around in his big boat across the sky with his big freaking sun hat. It sort of vaguely reminds me of a sci-fi AI like HAL in Space Odyssey, or TARS in Interstellar. Other characters that didn't get a lot of time here like Anubis, earlier gods like Tefnut, Shu, Geb, and Newt, all have their own stories. And did you know that there were actually two Horuses in many versions of these stories, with Horus the Younger, the later star of our story, being named after his older uncle? No one is really certain when the religion or myths of ancient Egypt really got started. The oldest written material we have is attributed to the Old Kingdom period in Egypt. The Old Kingdom was about four to 5,000 years ago. At this point in human history, most stories or knowledge would have been communicated verbally. Written stuff was rare and expensive, and to some degree an afterthought in many cultures. So not much remains today in written form. What we can say, though, is that if it was written down, it surely existed before that. Myths do seem to be an attempt to explain the world around you. So whatever the stories were originally, they were considered important and were therefore worthy of being written down, which was no casual task. There is not really a whole lot of written narrative about things the Egyptian gods did or didn't do, at least that I've found so far. At least, nothing really like an Egyptian Bible or something like an Egyptian Odyssey or the Iliad. The stories come from parts of what are called funerary texts which were mostly composed of spells and prayers, written in tombs of pharaohs or on other monuments, and things like the Book of the Dead, which makes several appearances in the Brendan Fraser mummy series and is actually used for the spells pertaining to the afterlife in the movie. Anyway, the interesting thing there is that there doesn't really seem to be a whole lot in the way of chronology, of when a lot of these little events of the story happened. Uh, A lot of things... Are almost kind of like standalone installments, like an anthology series. You get different stories about different Egyptian gods through different periods in Egyptian history that, you know, one group that came before or after might not have really held as that important. So Egypt has a long history, and as far as we can tell, people started living in the Egypt region during the end of the Pleistocene, the Last Ice Age. At this point, we're still in what we call the Paleolithic, the Stone Age, albeit the Late Stone Age. People, again, as far as we can tell, only just started to embrace the idea of farming, which means more or less stable populations hanging around in one general area. We're starting to move away from the nomadic hunter-gatherer societies. As we move forward in time, farming ultimately allowed for larger groups and villages, and eventually towns and cities. We even see some of the oldest evidence of domesticated cattle and other livestock, about four to 5,000 B.C., which is around 7,000 years ago. Ancient Egypt also had something in common with America. Its own geography protected it from outsiders, desert on either side of the Nile, and the Mediterranean to the north. But large-scale agriculture was really a sort of technological advancement in the ancient world. Farming created stability and security that nomads didn't get. This in turn allowed people to think about and do other things. So we start to see more elaborate structures, tools, social customs, and even religions. This is a theme that is still present today. As human capital is freed by some new advance, it in turn breeds some other advance or change. In the best cases, these advances make life easier, or a little easier than it was before. Farming would explode in Egypt, and it was all centered around the Nile River. Everyone today knows about the seasonal flooding in the Nile, and that flooding depositing the nutrient-rich soil that made farming possible. The Nile doesn't flood anymore, It's been dammed up for a long time now, but we kind of missed the point there. The flooding was predictable, and people realized this. That seems like a really small thing today, but that's transformative at that time. So you have a perfect storm of things coming together, domesticated animals, agriculture, now based on predictable natural currents, and geographic protection from outside forces. In fact, the seasons of ancient Egypt were called akhet, meaning flood, peret, meaning emergence, and shemu, meaning harvest. The ancient Egyptians kept track of this seasonal year using the phases of the moon and the star Sirius. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky, twice as bright as the next star. As we progress through the year, there is a period of time where Sirius is not visible in the morning sky, and then it reappears and it is visible in the eastern sky at dawn. That day, the heliacal rising, was the ancient Egyptian new year. In a culture that keeps track of time as a means to schedule tasks like farming or predict other events, the ritual behavior sort of seems baked in. So one thing I always wonder about with any sort of myth is do the myths inspire the ritual, or do the rituals inspire the myths? Could one even exist without the other? And if that ritual depends on things like the sun, water, and wind, doesn't that kind of automatically make those things sacred in their own way? That's the highlights anyway, at least in my opinion. Hopefully you can see how Egypt truly is a transformative place in all categories of history, from trying to explain the world through characters like Set and Horus, to becoming the first major successful civilization to form around a more or less uniform set of ideas and culture, which is something that you can kind of see with these myths. Even if the myths change through time, the characters and a lot of the styles remain the same. Egypt, of course, makes a prominent appearance in the Bible, which is obviously still around today and would go on to be a trophy for later empires like the Greeks, the Romans, even Napoleon, and then even the British Empire up until the 1950s. So, Egypt is a really fascinating subject. I would encourage everybody to read up on that, because there's a lot of stuff there that is just, I don't know, fascinating. But if you want to read more about the myths in this episode, the two main ones you should look up would be the Osiris myth and the contendings of Horus and Set. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The music used in this episode in order of appearance, The Descent, Shadowlands, Desert City, Division, and Drums of the Deep by Kevin MacLeod. If you like Lore and Legends, consider supporting the show at buymeacoffee.com slash loreandlegends with a one-time gift that will cost less than a cup of coffee. You can also follow on Instagram, where my handle is at loreandlegends1, and on Twitter, at Lore and Legends 3 You can also subscribe to the Lore and Legends YouTube channel, which features video versions of all your favorite episodes. And of course, the official website, loreandlegends.net. Thanks for checking out Lore and Legends. See you next time.